0: Block to Radio. I'd like to start by saying why me? Because this is a question that all of us ask when God calls us to something that's bigger than we are. We say, well, I think you've got the wrong person just like Moses. We're all like, I don't think you have the right person. And I was telling God originally, you know, I mean, I'm mean, i the person that when I don't eight to nine hours of sleep a night, I walk into walls and I don't form full sentences. And you want me to go speak at conferences on the other side of the globe where I'll be jet lagged and all that. And God just has been so faithful. This morning, as I was putting on my armor, usually I put on my spiritual armor every morning as I'm getting dressed physically, I get dressed spiritually. And I was putting on my shoes a piece. I was, I was thinking of Moses, and when Jesus said, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And I think what he meant was, take off your own shoes this year and put on my shoes a piece. And I'm going to walk you through this. And so that's kind of how I start every day and how I'm going to do this tonight. This time, before I left, God prompted in my heart as I was praying through what I'd be speaking on. And as I was preparing, God showed me that I would be doing open-heart surgery on the deep woundedness that especially women, but the people in my audiences would have. And it was overwhelming to me to contemplate that thought. I mean, my dad had open heart surgery. It's no fun. They they cut you open. They take a mallet and they break your bone, open your heart, take it out, stick it back in. The recovery time is long and painful. And I thought about this deep spiritual healing, and I thought, I don't think I'm the right person to do that kind of surgery. I can't imagine And if I did it wrong, I'd leave, and they'd be there broken and hurting and wounded. And God showed me that I was going to do it more like when Dave and I had LASIK surgery. And um, my sister's here tonight, too, and we had LASIK surgery together. (laughs) And when we had LASIK surgery, it took three minutes. Um, The doctor came in, and he cut the eye flap open. He burned off what wasn't necessary. I know it sounds so terrible. Then he cauterized it, and you walked out. And within 24 hours, you had 20-20 vision. And he showed me that's what we're going to do. And so I had courage. But the whole time I was praying that God, I needed another piece. I needed another piece. There was a piece missing. And the Wednesday night before I left, uh, Pastor Dodge spoke on Second Samuel, the point where David was finally, finally the king of Israel, all of Israel, and chose Jerusalem as his home base. But the Jebusites were in Jerusalem. And the Jebusites had held out that little portion right in the middle of Israel. They'd held out this little portion of land, and they had said, This is ours. You can have the rest around. But this is ours, and that's what Satan does in all of our lives. He holds this portion of us hostage. And David and his men went and took Jerusalem in one day, despite the fact that the Jebusites were so sure that they wouldn't get ousted out of there, that they would mock and they would say, even if we were blind and even if we were lame, you couldn't take this city. And that's how the enemy always speaks to us. Even if, you know, even if everything was perfect, you'll never be rid of this Addiction of this thing in your life, this pain. So as I went, that's what I was going to do. And it was really amazing to watch God be so, so faithful. In preparation, I had lots of prayers. I had 10 days of fasting. I prayed seven times a day for 90 days to get ready. And I knew that this was so much bigger than me, so much bigger than I could ever even begin to attempt to do. And all of those prayers, along with your prayers, along with the prayers of the people that I went to, just brought to victory. Um, One week before we left, I had a knockdown, dragout drag-out fight with God about choosing me, and I thought he was just crazy, and like, what are you thinking, and how am I going to do this, and this is nuts and crazy, and I don't think this can possibly be right. And I was calling him crazy, and at the end of my rant, (laughs) he just whispered in my heart, and aren't you just crazy to go? And I thought, you know what? I am. I'm sorry, of craving that. But my older sister has a phrase that she says that I've adopted. I'd rather look like a fool than miss an opportunity to serve God. And so I just thought, you know what? I am crazy. And you're crazy, too. And we're going to go to Africa. So we went. Um, the first time I went, God sent my speaking partners in a unique way. I host womenspeakers.com, which has over 1,000 Christian women speakers around the country and around the world. And uh, so what I did is I sent out a pitch and I said, anybody want to go to Africa on a speaking mission, send it, send back in your application. And I got a pile and I ruled out the ones that didn't seem like they would be a good fit. And I kept the ones that felt like, wow, you know, this person really has a heart for Africa. God's really calling them to Africa. I had over 20 in that pile. And And I went through and I kept going through and praying through. I was like, how do I pick? How could I possibly pick two women to go with me? on this trip, out of these 20 someone i go with any of them. I don't know. So finally, in the end, I just said, well, in the Bible, they would cast lots, so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to turn the pile upside down. I'm going to pick two out, and that's what we're going with. So I, I was living in Minnesota in the center of the United States, and the first one I picked was uh, Dr. Cheryl guys Turner from California, and I called Dr. Cheryl and I said, Cheryl, this is Marty from womenspeakers.com, and I am calling to invite you to go with me to Africa. And she said, wow, that's awesome. I love Africa. I've been there eight times, and I'm so excited. And she said, tell me a little bit more about it. And so I did, and I said, wow, you've been to Africa eight times. And she goes, yeah, and I've been to Kenya. And I thought, oh, God, I've never been to Africa. And here you give me this talented, godly woman to come and just be next to me. The next one I called was Reverend Sharon Herkins of New York, the other side of the country. And um, I I had known both of these ladies online for years, never met them in person. And so uh, when I uh, called Sharon, she answered the phone, and I was expecting a New York accent, but what I was hearing was something very different from a New York accent. And I said, Sharon, where were you born? And she said, South Africa. And I said, are you kidding me? So here God had... Both of these gals who were so familiar with Africa who could just come and walk me through. The first time I went, when I got back, my whole report was about traffic because it was so shockingly dangerous to just commute that I was really having a hard time processing anything else that happened other than just surviving the trip. So lots of change between now and then. This time when God picked my travel partner, he didn't have me send out a big thing. He just had me contact three ladies. The first lady said... I, I'm going to Africa sometime. I know I am, but I don't think I'm supposed to go with you. She ended up af- going to Africa before I did on a different trip. The second lady said, I think I'm supposed to go, but my husband and I are supposed to go together at a later time, not this year. And the third one I called was Trandine from Australia, and she said yes. And she was the perfect travel partner. She was an amazingly mature Christian woman who put all of her faith and hope in Christ. We had so much danger Situations on the road. Our car broke down multiple, multiple times. We had a lot of spiritual warfare going on, and uh, I have at least black hair, you know, and can kind of blend in a little. She's six foot tall with blonde hair, and everywhere we were, we were the only white people there. I mean, there were no other white people anywhere in the areas we were, and so she really had to deal with a lot of um, fear. Of being singled out and there's a lot of corruption in in these countries and so uh, she was just so mature about how she would just run her faith her fear to God and respond with faith every time last time the first time I went to Africa I wondered how God would fund it and I remember being in the pet department of our store one day and a lady just walked up to me and she said I've been supposed to do this for a long time but I just have to do it now. I just need to give you this. And she gave me an envelope. And when I looked later, it had $600 in it. She just felt prompted to give $600 to me and not to tell me what to use it for. But it came right at the time when that was my question to God. This time, my mom passed away, and she left us the money. And some of that went toward paying for this mission trip. God is always faithful However he calls you to do something, he's going to be faithful to let you do it. And it maybe won't come the way you think. Last time, I had a passion to start a micro fund for the women to start small businesses in Kenya. And I did a business uh, conference there, which I did some more of those this time. But last time, I took money for a micro fund. And over a period of time, there was one particular lady that donated thousands of dollars toward that particular project. Is able to start 28 small businesses and that was really cool. But the surprise this time was that um, Pastor Wafula, and I'm just going to back up for a second. So, Pastor Sam Wafula is who brings me and my team in to do speaking conferences in Africa, in Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda this time. And he has over 350 churches. His own ministry is a church that he pastors as well as he has co pastors. And then he has an orphanage. Last time I was there in 2016, the orphanage had 200 children. This time it was up to 450. And he's, he's in his early 30s, his wife is in his 20s, and they're running this huge, huge ministry. His father, Pastor Michael Wafula, is over 3,500 churches in seven countries in Eastern Africa. He's also a businessman. He has a gas station, he has a, a hotel, and he has a farm implement company. When I was there last time, he was just soaking up all the business training I was doing, and he'd get in there every time he could, you know, when they're... Running all this stuff, they're always getting pulled out for different things that he'd get in. So he traveled with us to another country where I was going to do it, another location rather, where I was going to do it. And he sat in, and then he ended up interpreting for me. He said, I have to focus on what you're saying. I'll be your interpreter. Then I can stay awake and listen to everything you say. So when we got back this time, he said, I have something to tell you. He said, when you were here last time in 2016, when you were talking, God put an idea in my heart for a new business. And he said, and I started that business. And I said, wow, tell me, what did you do? And he said, well, it's just a bottled water. It's just a fresh, pure bottled water. It's mineral water. And they they drilled 350 feet down into the earth to get this mineral water. And now he is the second largest bottled water distributor in Kenya in three years. <laughs> so God does amazing things. Last time I went, within 10 days of my visit, the government came into the orphanage uh, compound." And decided that they needed to build an eight foot brick wall around the entire compound. And I remember feeling really guilty and sad about this because I felt like me being there had put the spotlight on that ministry. And the government officials had come to some of the meetings, and I felt like, wow, you know, they saw American money and they are punishing this ministry for that. And over time, God gave me peace about that. And it took two years, but God provided all the funds for them to finish that uh, wall. One of the th- ways that he did it was after I got back, the local newspaper did an article about my trip, and I just mentioned this, that this was happening. And a lady from another city read it and sent money toward it. God, God works in mysterious ways. We just have to trust him. This time, within three days of my visit, the government closed down two of the dormitories at the existing orphanage right now, which put several children, displaced several children, several dozen children, actually. They were sleeping them three to a single bed, bunk beds, So they were overcrowded. And the difference for me was that last time I felt really guilty and I felt really bad and I felt really sad. And between the three years since then, I've come to view James 1.3 as exactly how it reads. And this time when it happened, I said, well, God God knows you need a new dorm. I mean, God's doing something. Let's just trust him. Let's trust him. Within just a couple of days, there was $1,000 to send just to put as seed money for that ministry for the new dorms. And he just, oh, I didn't bring that. He wrote me a letter this morning. One of the things that I do when I speak at conferences is I have an Excel chart. And at the top, of, I have over here the name of the conference, and then I have columns, and um, I, I pray through things like, you know, what the conference title is, the name of it, and who the planner is praying for her and her team, and the theme verse that they have, and the goal outcomes that the planner has. And then I have my own, my own vision for it, and then I have my pie in the sky. If I could ask for anything in the world for this conference, what would I pray for? So as I was praying for the Rwandan conference, had this crazy desire to have some time in private prayer with Pastor Sam and his wife Sharon. And I thought that just is impossible. I mean, it's two countries away. I don't know how that could happen. But on the, um, someone gave money on a particular day, gave $500 towards something on the trip. It wasn't specified, just something for the trip. And it was the same day that I needed to book the tickets for Taryn and I to get from Uganda to Rwanda. And when I went to book the tickets, I could get the two extra tickets for under $500 for uh, Pastor Sam and Sharon. So I just did it. There were five tickets left on the whole plane, and I just bought the tickets, and then I sent them the note. And I said, my heart is that when we get to Rwanda together that you guys will have some time alone together and that I'll be able to spend four hours of prayer with you guys individually and as a couple doing deep spiritual healing." Sharon's sister had died earlier in the year, and she had gone into a depression that lasted for a while. He had reached out one time and said, no, pray. Um, she just can't function. And we had prayed, and I was so amazed and delighted when I got there to see how healthy she was. She was just smiling. She was busy working. She was praising God. She's just centered, part of everything. But when we sat down to pray, I said, what's really on your heart? And she said, oh, it's know my sister died I said I know that is so sad and we cried about that a little bit and I said and what about that is really burdening you and she said well the way that it happened was that my brother-in-law refused to get her medical help she could have been saved but he killed her and then he took my niece and I don't know where they are and she was just every time she would think of her niece she would just be devastated and just kind of go into meltdown mode and be fearful. So we just prayed through that and God did that deep spiritual healing thing that he wanted to do and he just brought her to so much peace to the point where a couple days later when I asked her you know when you think about when you think about your niece now oh, she's fine God's got her it just was totally healed up and she just could rest in the grace of God. When I prayed with Pastor Sam he told me the story of how when he was just a little boy 12 10 or 12 years old that he had been kicked out of school one day because he didn't have funds um, he, for his books. And so they sent him down home ashamed. and along the way, he met an orphan boy who also couldn't go to school because he was an orphan. And that day he really resonated with that child. He's like, even though I have parents, I'm kind of like you. I don't have enough money to go to school. I can't make my own way. And when I grow up, I want to help people like us. And he started that was where it started for him. And he just has this heart to just help everybody he can. They have nothing and they share everything. And as we prayed through that, um, God just showed him that he was holding all of his orphans, his 450 kids, he was holding them really tight in his hand. And he was taking personal responsibility for all 450 of these kids. And he was just holding them so tight. And God wanted him to open up that hand (laughs) and just put them in God's care and just let God do with them as he would choose. So this came just within really hours of him finding out that several of his children would be put out into the streets because the government would close down a dorm. When he sent me the email today in there, he said, Mom, I really don't know how I could have lived if we hadn't prayed like that beforehand, but I can tell you I am at peace. And I believe that by January, all of these kids will be back in a new dorm. So, we're praying with him for five thousand dollars for a new dorm, and um, that is that's so cool. The spiritual warfare was really intense, especially three and a half days were just excruciatingly intense, where it seemed like anything that could go wrong did go wrong. And um, when we arrived, Pastor Sam was actually in the hospital. With malaria and typhoid, um, uh, one of the things was I had I had decided not to get my SIM card released for my t- cell phone. I would just get a burner phone when I was there, but I didn't remember that since I'd gone last time. Everything that you do now, they send this little six-digit code to your phone to confirm it's really you. I had my phone with me, and so everything got locked down within a couple days because I couldn't get at that to say it was me. And so I didn't have cash cards, I didn't have credit card, I didn't have phone. It was just really, really difficult to proceed. And God was faithful. Um, one of my credit cards did work, and then Taryn had the ability to get cash out of hers, so we were <laughs> rationing her cash limit every day <laughs> to make it through. At one point, um, our car that we were going to take, uh, we had been late to services three days in a row because this car was broken down every morning, and we were supposed to take it across the border to Uganda. And Taryn just said, we're not going to take this car to Uganda. There is no way I'm going to Uganda in a broken down car. So she said, with my own money, I'm just going to go rent a car. So she rented us a beautiful, almost brand new um, uh, Toyota Prada. And um, it was $200 U.S. a day to rent this car. <laughs> and so it was just really outrageous. And within 100 miles of us leaving the car rental place, it broke down for the first time. And it continued to break down. We spent 15 hours in broken down cars here, there, and everywhere, on the side of roads, at gas stations, at the border. It just went on and on. And uh, it was so, uh, it it was just, we started to say, well, this is ridiculous. We just saw it as spiritual warfare, and we would just say, well, this is just ridiculous. God's got it. Um, We're going to get through this. And what was amazing was the whole team that was traveling with us from Kenya, as well as ourselves, uh, we just kept putting everything in the hands of God and he was so faithful. And what amazed me was not ever did anybody lose their cool with each other. Everybody just stayed peaceful and calm, trusting God, standing in faith, using the name of Jesus a whole lot, and uh, just praising him for taking care of us. When we got to the Ugandan border, as we're pulling up, it was kind of weird as we're pulling up toward the border we see the border up there and these three men in suits just approach the car and so the driver slows down and uh opens his window and begins to speak to them and of course different language so i didn't know what they were saying and then they left and we kept on driving and so we were like what was that all about (laughs) so what they had done is they contacted these pastors who live near the ugandan border and they have a ministry where they will come and they will help you navigate the border because it's so difficult to get across the border and so they helped us it took 90 minutes at one point three people on our team including Sharon and her two-year-old baby had to walk over a mile just between two points that they were in pouring rain um, and then we finally got through because of our car issues it had been so late when we started that we, we were very late almost midnight getting through the border after we got through the border into Rwanda, two times before we got to the hotel, we were stopped by armed military groups. I know. It was like, it was like okay, God. So we were just in the name of Jesus a whole lot. One of the things I teach um, at all of my conferences is, is that whenever we feel danger, 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 we just say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And danger can be something great, you know, a really high moment in our life. Because that can lead to pride or could be a really scary moment in our lives. So we were just all practicing that all the time. And it was uh, really God that brought us through. We got to our hotel about 2 a.m. And then the next morning, of course, the vehicles broke down again. And so we were very late. When, when you arrive late in, in Africa, it's just the most amazing thing. So this one Sunday, we were late because of car trouble. So we were supposed to, church was starting at 10. And we got there at 1.30. And they were just praising the Lord, and they were so happy to see us. And, yeah, go ahead and take as long as you want. You know, it's just such a difference, diff- completely different. I, I think if I was in the United States, either everybody would have gone home or else they'd be throwing tomatoes, one of the two. But not just, oh, we're so excited to see you. Um, so it's was really uh, beautiful to minister there. A lot of ministry is helping women to understand how unique they are in Christ. And in these impoverished nations, um, women are oftentimes very submerged and very abused. Um, uh, Spousal abuse is just accepted completely. There's just, of course, you would be beaten if you don't behave properly. So to help them to understand, I would just, and you can all do do this with me right now, just hold up your thumb, hold your thumb up, that one little inch of rectangle right there, Is so unique to you that it can convict you of a crime in a court of law. You're the only one with that particular set of skin on you. And you're the only one that when God strung together your 3 billion base pair of DNA, he did it in a particular way because he really loves you. And he wants you to be fully you, exactly who you are, not trying to be somebody else, not apologizing for who you are, but just living fully in who you are. So that's one of my main messages that I teach when I'm abroad. And that's always um, <laughs> that's always a fun one to teach because a lot of women have never felt very valuable at all. The security checkpoints in Africa were crazy intense. Um, if you were going to go into a mall, a shopping mall, first of all, before you got into the parking lot, there would be a guard shack and they would... Um, take mirrors underneath the car to check for bombs and they would have armed guards with machine guns or for sure rifles and then when you went into the mall you would walk through like an airport type security situation just to walk into the mall so security is huge bomb dogs everywhere life in Africa is not the same as life here after the Jebusite day when they just and, and in Africa spiritual warfare is different in here like, the demons just feel free to just show up and mess up things. You know, they just, uh, last time we were there, uh, Sharon, Sharon told the story of, of watching as one demon possessed woman just picked up a pastor and threw him across the room. I mean, they just, they just don't hold back. They're just free to, free to roam. And so before we did the deep spiritual healing uh, Jebusite uh, Freedom Night, um, I just talked to them about that we have all authority over the enemy only has as much authority as we give him. We believe his lies and that gives him power. And I just talked to them about, we're not going to do this the way that you normally do it. It's going to be quiet. We're just going to personally confess our faults to God. We're going to forgive the people we need to forgive and we're going to receive healing. And that's what happened. There was nothing. There was no display. There was no outcry. There was nothing. It just got very quiet. And then And then they just started dancing. And the dance that they did, they always dance like crazy. (laughs) But um, this dance that they did, it was more like watching angels dance. They just kind of floated. (laughs) And they were so happy and they were so free. And it was so obvious that God had really healed their hearts. The next day, I just asked for a volunteer. There was somebody that still had something that was, you know, still troubling them from the night before, if they would want to come up, and I would pray with them publicly in front of everybody so we could all understand how to pray deep spiritual healing into our own lives and help others as well. A lady named Marta came up, and she said, you know, I have just received so much healing and freedom last night, but she said, I'm still really, really angry. And I said, well, without going into too much detail, just tell us what it is that's bothering you. And she said, well, my husband was killed by thugs. And there was just, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they killed him. And then the government put me in prison for six months for a debt that he hadn't paid. And while I was in prison, my children were at home alone, uncared for, and his family came in and took advantage of them. And she said, I'm just so angry. And so (laughs) I just said, Well, let's just ask God about that. Let's just ask God about that. And so we just prayed together and God just showed up for her, and God just comforted her heart, and she was said, I just want to forgive him. I just want to forgive him, so she just was able to come to a point where she could just forgive and release, and God just really took that burden off of her. Did it change her history? No, it didn't, but did it change her future? Yes, it did. God is so faithful, and he knows where we're at. Uganda, the scenery was absolutely amazing. I think it's most beautiful country I've ever seen. The landscape was astounding. It was also the most impoverished country I've ever seen. And I'm to just tell you a little bit about bathrooms. Uh, in the Hong Kong airport, the bathrooms had the kind of, they had very modern everything, and they had the kind of toilets that actually did the water spray on you if you wanted to have that clean <laughs> instead of toilet paper. Uh, So you went from that extreme to, in Uganda and in Rwanda, in the airports they'd have a sign that showed a person sitting on a toilet and a person standing on the toilet squatting over it. And they would have X over the squat one, and they'd they'd try to sit on the toilet. This is how we're supposed to use these. And then (laughs) where we were up in the hills in Uganda, they had just the regular outhouse with the hole in the ground, except that in Uganda there was no hole. There was just a little shed with a cement slab, and that was the bathroom. The most um, tragic sight I saw was in Uganda. We were up in the hills, and there was a little four-year-old walking along the road. And this wasn't even—you would—I don't know—you could call it a trail, maybe. It wasn't a road. It was just so terrible. And this little four-year-old was walking. There were no adults in sight, and he had a baby strapped to his back. Just like wow. They just have nothing when they do the best they can. The ladies at the Ugandan conference were wearing beautiful dresses with cummerbunds. I mean, it was just incredible how they could take care of themselves and keep clean. Their houses don't have doors. They just have sheets on them, and yet they can figure out how to put a dress on and put something together and wrap some fabric around to make it look beautiful. My translator in Uganda was Sarah. She was the pastor's daughter, and it was the first time she'd ever been a translator. And she did such a great job, and it was really exciting for her to be able to be used by God like that. And that was the same with Stephen in Rwanda. It was the first time he had ever been a translator, and they both did amazing jobs uh, translating, and they were, both of them, just vibrating with excitement that God could use them in that way, and that all the study that they had done had led them to that moment. I asked, uh, at the Business Women's Conference, I asked for someone to come up that I could interview about her business and Beautifully dressed lady came up. She was a tailor and she started telling stories about how she had grown her business. She worked very hard. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm doing these interviews is I like to emphasize that hard work is part of what God calls us to do. In an impoverished nation, a lot of people subconsciously have a very victim mentality, have a very hands out mentality. And so, need someone to encourage them that, yes, you have a part in this. God just doesn't mean for you to sit at home and wait for the money to come. You have to go partner with him and do something. So her story included a lot of hard work, and um, that word of mouth advertising was what she counted on for business, and that she was able to do her work very well, quickly, and at a reasonable price, and so she felt like that's why her business was successful. She also told a story about how God had provided her with a special gift one day. And I was really praying, okay, God, I think I'm supposed to ask her this question, but I don't want to embarrass her. I still don't want to embarrass her in front of all these ladies. But I felt prompted and I just went ahead and I said, so was there ever a time when you gave someone a gift? I mean, God gave you this gift, but before that, was there ever a time when you just gave someone a gift? And she said, oh, all the time. And I said, could you just share one example? And then she shared this example. She said, well, there was a lady that had come to me, and she was going to give me some business, but she was very upset about something. So as we were talking, I just said, can you tell me why you're so upset? And the lady said, yeah, my, my husband, he's beating my little boy. He wants him dead. And so they prayed together, and then the tailor lady said, well, how about if I raise him for you? Then he would be safe. She adopted that boy on that day, and he was still with her his life in Africa the Ugandan group was pretty reserved compared to Kenya but when we left they cheered and screamed and jumped up and down and they were so full of the joy of the Lord the other thing that they did is before we left they all stood in that whole auditory they all stood and they reached their hands out toward us like this every lady reached her hands out toward us like this and they prayed and they didn't just pray a little they prayed and they cried and they prayed and it was after that, within 24 hours, that the spiritual warfare really broke. And we were still in Africa, but we were no longer under this cloud that was just so heavy. It was just hard to move. And it was, I believe, that it was the prayers of all of you beforehand, of all of the people who were praying back here, of the whole Kenyan conference, of the whole Ugandan conference, and then those women praying and the Rwanda pre conference praying. I believe that all of it came to a point where it tipped the bowl. And that it just freed enough power in the unseen world to free us from that torment that we'd been under. And the next thing that happened was, before we were completely free of it, went to the airport, and getting to the airport was just a nightmare with our stupid broken down car the whole way. So we were just like praying God. It's such a miracle we got there. And, you know, you're supposed to be, in Africa, you're supposed to be three hours early for an international flight. We got there less than an hour and a half early. And then we got up to the ticketing counter, and they said our tickets were incorrect and that we needed to fix things and have things done and pay extra money. And at some point um, they said you, to me, you need to come with us. We're going to go up over there. And so I was separated from the group and as I was walking with us. Older type guy, I'm. I'm like, God favor, just give favor, just favor, favor, favor. So I just started a conversation with this guy. How long have you been working here? And la la la. And uh, he had enough English that we could communicate. And so then we finally get all the way up to this uh, private office, and um, I just sat down, and, and then we started to have a conversation between the manager guy and me. And he was going to charge us this money, and and I just said a couple of things that I just kept praying for favor. God, just favor, 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 favor. And it got down to the end that I had to pay $18 and we could go. And I was like, thank you, God, because that could have been so different. Um, so many times we would get somewhere and whatever the amount was that they said, that would be exactly what cash we had left. Like if we all pooled every coin, we had, that's how much we had left. And God was just so faithful all the way. So once we got to Rwanda, um checked into a space that we did not select. It was selected for us by the host church there. And it was a Catholic, um, like a monastery-type place. It was very quiet. It was very clean. And it was just really just restful after our journey, and we left our car behind. <laughs> so that was awesome. And um, I went over to my, my room, and I opened the windows. And right outside my room, there was a roof, and on top of the roof was a cross thought, wow, that is so cool, God, that you've brought us to this safe place, Rolanda, a safe place, and so um, the first day of the women's conference then was the next day, and Taryn and I had talked about what we were going to do the next morning at the conference, and we had a plan, and went to bed, and I get up in the morning and God is like, no, you're going to talk about the cross of Christ first thing this morning. And when I do the program, the cross of Christ, I really go into detail about how amazing it is that Jesus Christ, God himself, came in the flesh and that he suffered so much that he could understand everything that we've ever gone through. And I go through the last, the last days of Jesus' life and how the whole crucifixion process was intended to, to put on as much shame as possible. That was the whole purpose, shame and pain, just shame and pain all the way through. And how he just completely could understand feeling betrayed, feeling lonely, feeling abandoned, feeling physical and verbal abuse, and feeling shame. We didn't know that it was Rwanda's 25th anniversary of the genocide until we got there. And that morning, as God was prompting, I didn't know that morning that it was, and I didn't know that that morning uh, uh, government uh, officials with their security team would come to the event. But God prompted me before I went, and I told Karen in the morning, I said, I'm not sure why I'm doing this the first thing in the business conference talking about the cross of Christ, but that's what we're going to do. So we got there, and I just had started talking when these people came in, and so I handed the microphone back to the pastor who introduced them, then he handed it back to me, and I just launched right into this program on the cross of Christ and what he came to do for us. At the end, they had a short talk, and then they had to leave, but we kept talking, and so I didn't get to speak to them, but one of the officials that was with the group had told the pastor before they left, I just wish that she could be here another week because the rest of our staff need to hear this message. God is so big, and he does what he does without us even knowing what he's doing, and it's pretty awesome. The Rwandan Genocide Memorial was... There are no words. It was um, disturbing at best. Um, Rwanda is half the size of Florida. In three months, 2.2 million people were displaced and 250,000 people brutally murdered. And the government and the soldiers did not do most of the killing. What they did was they coerced the citizens to kill their neighbors. And they went by how long your nose was. There's actually a picture of a measuring stick and they just measured your nose and if it was the wrong size, you died. And you died a horrible death, usually machete, but there were I just I just understood the machete part and I didn't understand that it was neighbors, but they had stories from survivors and the survivors, one of them talked about how their neighbors were best friends. These people were godparents of these kids. They would have meals together every Saturday night. They were just best friends. But when the soldiers came, they said to this family, you have to kill this family, or we'll kill your children. So they turned their people into murderers, and they became like animals. And they, the way that they murdered wasn't just quick and easy. They tortured. Um, the room that was really disturbing had pictures of very small children and babies that were killed before four years old, and all the different ways that they killed them, including they just grabbed their feet and slammed their heads on the ground. They impaled them on. Dicks and it was really, really terrible. and our driver was a uh, Rwandan. He had been a child at the time. He didn't speak very much English, but he led us through and it was pretty intense to go through with him. I didn't find out if he was which side of it he was and didn't really matter. Anybody that lived through that at the time was affected for the rest of their lives and it amazed me that I had gotten to start that conference with the Cross of Christ. And again, uh, God was amazing um, to bring healing to their hearts—the uh, deep, deep spiritual ones that they carried. I left Rwanda <laughs> with a with a fall I was at the airport, and there's so much um, so much security. That's so weird. Everything is different, and they had um, had to get out of your car at one point, and there was a. Uh, an uneven patch over here so when I was getting back in after the dogs had gone and all this and then I fell down and I I, I jammed my fingers and my knees were bloody and it was just it was kind of uh it was like leaving Africa <laughs> so I, I just stood up saying thank you thank you thank you thank you um, if this is the worst that happened to us during this whole trip we were really really spirited really blessed and I just felt so grateful so I got on a plane and I went another five hours time difference to, to the Philippines, and the culture shock was pretty intense. Uh, Africa is wild and crazy, and they are the time is of no consequence. You know, they would come to me in Africa and they would say, "Mum, the lunch is not ready. Can you talk another hour?" Sometimes three times in a row. And in the Philippines, the one time when they came to me and they said, Mom, the um, the snack is not ready," and I I would just keep I was like, this is so odd. They said, could you speak another five minutes? And I just burst out laughing. I was like, absolutely, we can do this. So uh, they were very on time and organized and all prim and proper. And like in Africa, I mean, when they dance, I can't even possibly show you what it would be like. Just imagine jumping jelly beans. So that's, they're they're just moving. Their entire bodies are moving all the time. And in the Philippines, They stand very still, and they sing very sweet songs to Jesus from the bottom of their hearts. And when they want to get active, they do this. We're happy, active, joyful all the time. And then they do this, and then they do it on the other arm to just warm up. And so it's just such a culture shock difference. And in Africa, every day for meals, we would have four starches and one little teeny thing of a little bit of meat and sauce. Otherwise, we would have ugali, which is a cornmeal, and then we'd have rice, then we'd have a, a bread thing and potatoes every meal. And then we got to the Philippines, and every meal was rice and fish and bananas and something else. So it was just, it was quite a culture shock to get there. And it was, the Filipinos can speak English. Our accents were a little bit of a challenge, but we could totally understand each other. So it was just real encouraging to me that after the sessions, the ladies would come up and tell me what they got out of it. Instead of in Africa, you just had to know that God was taking care of it and that he was working. On a funny note, and I'm just about done here, on a funny note, um, my hair in America, my hair is sometimes kind of a thing. Like people are like, well, that's kind of different, you know, or um, maybe not liking it very much. But in Africa, it was quite refreshing um, in, in Kenya, the little girls all wanted to grow up and have hair like mine, which I thought was so sweet. And in Uganda, the ladies had the pastor's wife come and ask me if it was a piece, which I thought was really fun. And then in the Philippines, every day the ladies would say to me, oh, It's different again today. <laughs> so it was just kind of fun to have fun hair sometime in my life. The wow in the Philippines was Connie. She was a Mongolian missionary sent from the Philippines to Mongolia with her family. They had just come back because her son had been in an accident, and his injuries were so grave that they needed to come back to the Philippines for better medical care. Once they got back, they were hit with five major losses, just one back-to-back. Family members died, illness, a diagnosis, and two other things. And As she's telling me, she gets to the end of this horrible list of just tragic, big, shattering things, and she goes, God, it's so good. And I just burst out laughing, and I said, Connie, did you just hear yourself? Did you just hear what you just did? You just named off all of these horrible things. And then you said, God is so good. She said, but I can't help it. She said, when we were in Mongolia, if all of these other five things had happened, how would we have managed? We had to be here for them to happen. It's such a blessing to be here. And besides, she said, I wouldn't have even gotten to come to this conference if I wasn't here. So it was worth it all. <laughs> and I just loved their hearts. Um, their hearts were so huge. They had the choir um, presentation at every session, and they would dress in matching outfits and just they would sing their hearts out in their unique way. After a session about faith, Nilda, who is in her 80s, she gave the testimony that she had been so worried because she recently had a pacemaker put in. It would be 300,000 shillings, and she didn't have the money, but she was excited because she knew that God was going to provide. The personality training was amazing. They so loved that training, and what they found was that they realized with tears that they had been pushing away all the fun people from their ministry. They had kept the administrators, and they had kept – the uh, leaders and organizers, and they had kept the stabilizers, the prayerful ladies, but they had been pushing away all the fun ladies, and they realized with tears that God wanted them to have a little bit more fun and not quite be so serious all the time, and it was really precious to see that. They also really took heart the mission vision training, and they did the homework of that, and they came back, and their statements were so unique to each of them. God just spoke to their hearts and told them, exactly why he had them on earth, what he wanted them to do, basically, their mission and their vision for life. And it was so fun to watch that happen. I was one night in the office. The only place I could get internet to call Dave or the kids was in the office. And um, I had to get special permission to get in there because it was locked just this little room. And I was in there one night to call him. And I heard on the other side of the wall the ladies chanting out loud, danger, danger, danger. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Danger, danger, danger. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I thought, yeah, they've got it. They've got it. They're understanding this, and they're going to use it from this day forward. I'm going to close with the story of Sam's mother. So um, the pastor in Kenya, Sam Oslo, who is over the ministry that has the 450 orphans. His mom, Phoebe, is just a beautiful (laughs) woman. And uh, she is very quiet. And uh, because she doesn't speak English, I never got a chance to really talk one-on-one with her last time I was there. And it was really my heart to do that. So this time, we made it happen. And I sat down and I said, I just would like to know how you did your life. Like, (laughs) you're just married to this crazy guy over 300, 3,500 churches. And, you know, Sam's got these, all your kids are crazy. You've got a lot of kids. How many kids? 13 biological children. One died. And then she said, and we adopted 30 extra children. So I have 42. <laughs> this is Africa. This is Africa. I tell you, God is so big. Um, we put him in a little box. And then when he asks us to do something we big, we say we can't possibly do that. But we forget just how big he is. He is so huge. And whatever he calls you to do, whatever it costs, however ill-equipped you feel like you would be to do it. Just remember that if he calls you to it, he will carry you through it and provide what you need. And I'd like to close with a prayer that I often pray. In fact, I pray this pretty much every morning, but I would like to pray it for you. Father, it is with great joy and relief <laughs> that I release everything that is not for our good to you. I release and forgive everything that is not for our good to you. And we receive right now with joy and Excitement and praise and dancing, your perfect plan and provision for us now. You are the King. There is no lack, loss, lateness, lameness, or limitation with you. But you rule over all. Your banner over us is love, and there is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. So we go free to love and serve you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.